0: Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 24th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where, again, we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Uh, last week, Brandon Hall was on here, and we started very tactical, and then he got very practical. Uh, and that, <laughs> that was great, so I truly appreciate that, and we are uh, blessed to have him on for another episode here as we get into this. So Brandon is the CEO and founder of Hall CPA, which inside of that, uh, so Hall CPA is a very large as we discovered international tax firm. Um, but then he also has inside of that a, one of the subsidiaries underneath that would be a tax smart insiders or tax smart investors, which has the <laughs> tax smart insiders group inside of that, uh, this forum that you can use to um, get incredible tax, tax answers to all of your questions. And so, so we dug into that. Uh, we're going to get a, hit a quick disclaimer here and then jump right into some more meat. So thank you again, Brandon, for being on. Thanks, Eric. I'm excited to be back. All right. All right. So as always, this is educational and formal, not meant to be specific uh, tax advice or financial advice to you. Please consult your team and make sure that you are deciding uh, with with experts there what what makes the best sense for you. But none of this is meant to be specific tax or financial advice to you. Um, All right. So we finished up last week, Brandon, going into this idea of of where's the best use of our time? Because it's not mm-hmm. just about uh, ROI on on the dollars here. So you might give up a few percentage points by choosing to be passive inside and uh, inside real estate investments rather than active. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what's that worth in terms of your time and your family and your involvement and you know deathbed type regrets and other things like that, which is so powerful. Um, but you, you hit on something as we talked about this of uh, this idea of. Well I know that I can use and, and most people don't so this is this is you know you're fluent in this language and I'm I'm growing in this language of understanding um, just how someone can effectively uh, manipulate their tax rate down their effective tax bracket down to whatever rate they want mm-hmm. and or or close there to and um, you know because we, we always hear about you know how the wealthy you know Donald Trump you know doesn't you know paid two percent of taxes and Elon Musk you know didn't pay taxes and we, we know all that stuff we hear that. And we accuse the ultra wealthy of, you know, being fraudulent or something along those lines, which is not the case because they are heavily <laughs> under the microscope. Not not always, but most part they're heavily under the microscope. Um, and so it, we, we talked about this, like there's this relative ignorance in taxes. Most people have, have a, a very, very small limited understanding of taxes um, compared to what they do to earn their living. Um, and they pay a relatively large amount in taxes compared to what they would had they known more. Um, but what I want to get into is, is the idea of when you work with the CPA, what, what happens there? And, um, and so we're gonna go there, we're gonna get into a little bit more of, of this tax planning side of things as well. The, the uh, concept of what someone's missing out on as a business, let's take a business owner, for example. I, I know a number of business owners who still do their own taxes. And you've obviously encountered that as well when, you, when new people come to your firm that have been doing their taxes for a while. What do you typically see, that, that the errors that they're making and what, what dollars that constitutes um, in time to return to them once they work with someone who is you know, an expert in this field? Yeah. So in general, I think that if you
1: have a relatively simple tax situation, meaning that you have a W-2 job And you might have some itemized deductions. You're writing off your mortgage interest, property taxes, maybe some charitable contributions. Uh, I think that you can prepare your own tax return on TurboTax. I think that the mistake is thinking that because I've been preparing my return on TurboTax for some time, because I've had a simple situation, um, I can also prepare my own return when I start my Schedule C business or when I start investing in real estate. Because the second that you add a business or a rental property to your return, you've just 10x the complexity. (laughs) Uh, The IRS actually has publications that go over how to prepare all these extra forms that you have to prepare. Uh, So they have like an instruction manual for Schedule E and Schedule C. And at the very bottom, they will tell you how much time it takes the average non-professional tax person to prepare those forms. And it's not unheard of to see like 50 hours. Uh, listed there. So, again, the, the what a lot of people, the, the mistake, Not that, that the average of-
0: person, non-professional, spends 50 hours doing right. this. They right. should. And right. instead, they are half, well, half we people. keep the language. Right. PG.
1: And they have, like, part of those 50 hours, too, is understanding the tax code. So, like, What happens is you get a rental, you go on to TurboTax, and you just start plugging in numbers based on the TurboTax prompts, but you don't actually understand what you're doing. So like the mistake that we see a lot of DIY preparers make, especially as it pertains to real estate, is taking deductions that they cannot claim or that loss after depreciation, claiming that against their W-2 income, even though they're not a real estate professional or it's not a short-term rental property. Um, And if we take it further, because sometimes people can figure that out. So sometimes there are really good DIY... Tax preparers like they actually want to learn the tax code, and they spend a lot of time learning it and reading it and consuming content. Um, They will still they'll they'll get like a good Schedule E prepared, but they'll miss like partial asset dispositions. They'll miss the 2013 tangible property regulations and everything inside of that because that's like the next level of expertise. So you are costing yourself. And and I know that this probably sounds self serving because I'm a CPA and I provide tax preparation services. But believe me, if I didn't have to provide tax preparation services, I would not. Tax, prepar- <laughs> tax <laughs> preparation is like, it's one of the hardest businesses to run. There, Nobody's happy with tax preparation. The clients aren't happy because my CPA takes forever to get the stuff done. They sent me this 50-page organizer. The CPAs aren't happy because we've got a ton of tax returns to do and we don't get a life, right? So nobody's happy. So if I didn't have to prepare tax returns, I wouldn't. But the reality is, is that it's still better to get somebody that understands this process and how to complete the forms and all the stuff that goes behind it rather than doing it yourself because you are costing yourself money. Uh, You will make mistakes that cost money, but even if you don't make mistakes that cost money, you are costing yourself money and or time. And if you could have spent the same time growing your business or expanding Mm -hmm. your income, you are absolutely costing yourself money. And you have to look at it like that. There's a lot of DIY preparers, they prepare Monterey tax for like 90 bucks. They add a rental property. They call us up and we go, it's going to be $2,000 and they throw up, right? They're like, well, I'm just going to self-prepare. That's, I can't spend too. I've never spent more than a hundred dollars on my tax return. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Dude. Oh my gosh. Cool. Go do it. You spent 20 hours preparing your own tax return and you still made mistakes. So was that worth it? Was it, was your, was your time worth a hundred dollars an hour? You gotta value yourself more, man. You gotta, you gotta like, uh, gosh, I don't know. I I target like five hundred dollars an hour. If it's less than five hundred dollars an hour, I'm outsourcing it.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, Next question, kind of going off on that. Help someone, and and just this is just brief, but so let's just only spend a couple minutes because I want to get into some other pieces. But for a business owner who's trying to decide LLC, S corp, C corp, can you give just a, a broad kind of broad brush there of, of yeah, when, yeah, when is the right time to, especially when's the right time to go from LLC to an S or to be taxed as an S corp? Sure.
1: So when you are starting a business, start with an LLC. Uh, technically, you don't even need an LLC. This is like, so, so an LLC is uh, primarily for legal protection. Um, so depending on what type of business you're starting, you should start by analyzing, do I need a, legal protection. Do I need asset protection, right? Do I need to limit my liability coming out of this business? Um, so, you know, if you're doing professional services, like a like running a CPA firm, um, that has liability versus uh, starting a flower shop probably doesn't have that much liability, right? So So you start by assessing, do I have liability? And you want to do this with an attorney. So everything that I just said is not legal advice. Make sure that you touch base with an attorney on this. Right. It is worth paying the attorney 200 bucks for their time to to have a conversation around, do I need an LLC or not? Um, so once you once you get to the, I need an LLC for liability protection, uh, you can tax that LLC in a number of different ways. The default tax structure for an LLC is partnership. And that's true even if you're a single member LLC. So if I own 100% of my LLC, it's still going to be taxed as a partnership but what that means is it's just following the partnership tax laws. And that's just saying everything passes through to the owner. And because it's 100% owned, it's disregarded for tax purposes. So I'm still going to put it on Schedule C as if I don't have an LLC. All right. And I know that's a little confusing, but it's just really kind of a, a simplified way to look at it. So if I could set an LLC up, everything passes through to me. I report it on Schedule C if I own 100% as if the LLC doesn't exist. But when I have an LLC, I have the ability to tax my LLC as something other than a partnership. So I can tax my LLC as an S corporation or as a C corporation if I so choose. Um, Most people will tax their, their LLCs as an S corporation once they hit a certain earnings threshold. That earnings threshold used to be about fifty thousand dollars. Now it's probably like eighty to ninety thousand dollars because of QBI, Qualified Business Income, which is that twenty percent deduction on my business income, and I can explain a little bit of that um, if yeah. you want me to. Okay, so so when I well, let's say that I'm netting one hundred thousand dollars and I'm reporting it on Schedule C, um, I pay a fifteen point three percent self-employment tax on that $100,000 before we even consider my marginal tax and my state tax rates, yep. all right? And that 15.3 self-employment tax is both halves of the employer, uh, employer and employee FICA and Social Security taxes, uh, Medicare and Social Security taxes, sorry, so FICA taxes. So when you're a W-2 employee, you pay that 7.65% payroll tax and your employer pays that 7.65% payroll tax, right? That yep. you pay one half of Social Security, your employer pays one half. You pay one half of Medicare, your employer pays one half. When you're your own employer, when you run a business, you get the wonderful privilege of paying both halves, the employer and the employee. So now your tax rate's 15.3% on every dollar of net income that you earn. And again, that's before we even factor in my marginal and state taxes. So you can very quickly get to like a 50% effective tax rate running a business. One way to reduce exposure to that FICA tax is to tax my LLC as an S corporation. Uh, Because when I tax my LLC as an S corporation, I'm going to pay myself a W-2 wage. And the remainder amount of my profits that does not come out as a W-2 wage would avoid that 15.3% tax. So on my $100,000 net income example, if I run it as a Schedule C uh, single member LLC, I'm gonna pay $15,300 in self-employment taxes. If I were to tax that LLC as an S corporation, and maybe I pay myself $70,000 in wages, the remaining 30% comes out as net profit, just passes right through to me. Uh, Only the $30,000 that passes right through through to me is avoiding that 15.3% tax which saves me about $4,500 in taxes or so. It's about, yeah, about $4,500 in taxes. Um, so instead of paying $15,300 in self-employment taxes, because I'm I'm taxing myself as an S corporation and I'm paying myself a W-2 wage $70,000, I'm only going to pay 11000 or so, $10,500 in self-employment taxes. So that's why people look to that S corporation. But as I mentioned, it's a little sticky now. Uh, pre-2017, it was super... It was, it was a pretty straightforward calculation. Once I net 45 dollars 50000 I right. switch over to S Corporation. Uh, but now, you, you can't just make that determination. And this is where the online like influencers kind of get it wrong, because they'll just tell you, <laughs> hey, is, if you're making money, go tax it as an S Corporation. And by the way, when you tax it as an S Corporation, you're going to be out of pocket another $2,000 for another tax return, right? So that's, right. you got to factor that into your overall savings, um, because those are complex tax returns that you should not DIY. But uh, now that we have QBI, qualified business income, it's a 20% deduction on business income. The problem is my W-2 wage that comes out of the S-Corp is not considered business income, okay? So if I was netting $100,000 on Schedule C, single member LLC, and I qualified Mm -hmm. for QBI, I would get a $20,000 tax deduction just from QBI, this, this 199A tax deduction. If I pay my, if I tax it as an S Corp and I pay myself a $70,000 W 2 wage, now my QBI deduction is the remaining 30K of profit times 20%. So it's $6,000. So my Delta is losing a $14,000 tax deduction in order to gain $4,500 in tax savings from self employment. So you have to do that calculation with your accountant to figure yeah. out what's the right time to tax myself as an S-corporation. Um, right. And it can get pretty pretty gnarly pretty fast. So make, make sure that you do
0: this with professional help. All right. Thank you for going after that. Um, and that was probably a monologue. I probably just went well, like five it, minutes. It, I apologize. Yeah, no, no, no. That's all right. The, the whole idea behind this is, to, is to, to bring value there. I imagine that that brought value to some people. <laughs> um, I want to get into next um, tax planning. Okay, so, we, so we, back to this whole idea, you know, Donald Trump or anyone else you know, who we yeah. see in the media that, that you know, pays a very low amount of taxes, um, how do they do that? And so we've talked a little bit about real estate and you can, you got to be careful not to let the tax tail wag the dog um, because it needs to factor into your life, lifestyle too with this. But what type of tax planning, what does tax planning look like for someone and how would someone, like someone who's only vaguely familiar with some of these concepts, like will you help paint a little picture that way they can understand a little bit more of, of what it might look like to work with, to work with Hall CPA or some other CPA that is equally, you know, kind of qualified as you guys?
1: Yeah, so there's different uh, philosophies that uh, around on tax planning. Um, I think that the, the traditional accountant's approach to tax planning is at the end of every year, uh, like in December, we will basically create a draft tax return. They call it a pro forma. So we'll go into our software and we'll basically uh, take all of your annual, uh, this year's earnings, this year's stock sales, and all that stuff. We're going to put it into this draft tax return and, and there's going to be an output and that's what you're going to pay on April 15th. Um, a lot of, th- that's the traditional view of what tax planning means. It's it's planning for the future payment that I'm going to owe. Right. Uh, and then, with that, too, there'll be like a quarterly touch base, like, hey, make sure that you pay $15,000 this quarter and estimated payments. Uh, and that's valuable to a degree, but it's not very proactive. So our approach to tax planning is intake a client. So a new client comes on board. Uh, we front load the a, a lot of the strategy calls. We call them strategy calls, but a lot of the planning calls. Um, so so in the first 30 days of a new client coming on board, we're going to have multiple calls with them to understand what are their goals, what are they trying to achieve, what does their situation look like, and then we're going to follow that up with, hey, based on what you told us, here are the highest ticket items for you to focus on. Um, so we will basically map it out with an action plan and show people you need to be knocking this thing down or, or these steps down by the end of the year or by this due date in order to optimize your tax position. Uh, so we we kind of do more of this. It's almost like, honestly, it's almost like education, to be honest. I mean, it's it's a lot of us doing an intake and doing an analysis, but then we have to teach the client why this is important to them and what they need to do specifically in order to execute on the strategy that we are, are essentially proposing to them. Um, but we, you know, even then, we take a different approach to, I think what a lot, uh, even some accountants that have have followed in our footsteps and kind of um, copied our model, what they do is they will pitch you like a (laughs) hundred strategies. And again, like we're very big believers of return on your time, return on hassle. Like uh, if you haven't picked that up yet, um, then go go back and listen to the other (laughs) episode that we just filmed. I value my time and I value my client's time. And every, all of our advisors value our client's time. So we're not going to go pitch 100 strategies for you because one, are you really going to read that document? Uh, two, if you did, are you really going to understand it? And three, are you actually going to execute on all that stuff? Probably not. So what we do instead is we try to sift through and figure out what are the top three to five things that we want you to focus on. And then we're going to hold you accountable to that over you know the next year of working together. So that's our approach to tax planning. It's a little unconventional um, you know it's not just a once a year here's your pro forma here's what you're going to owe in april it's a it's an ongoing relationship that we're developing with the client to understand who they are what their goals are and what strategies we can kind of layer into their life so that they can mitigate taxes without having to go way out of their way and do something they don't want to do We've yeah. told people, yeah, the short term rental loophole is amazing, but like it's not for you. You're not like if, if I went to a CPA, m- me personally, if I went to a CPA and they pitched me on a short term rental loophole, hopefully they asked enough questions to realize I value my time and, uh, and not to say that like that's not valuable, it is, but mm-hmm. the way that I value my time, I don't want to self manage a short term rental. So hopefully they figure that out and they say, yeah, you could save money, but like this doesn't align with who you are and what you yeah. want now. That's what we try to do with our clients.
0: I love it. I love it. And it's to the to any listeners who are just used to the, I go to my CPA, I, I hand, I give them all the info that they need. And then I, they tell me, you know, they do their best to, to lower my taxes. If, if that's all you've seen, like there's just such another world out there when you find the right CPA. And so, uh,
1: yeah, actually, so that, so if you if you are talking to your CPA once a year for the purpose of completing your tax return, you are not getting tax planning. No, they might save you money, uh, and they will—they will absolutely tell you that they save money. It saved you money, and you'll probably feel good about it. But what they're doing is they're basically saying, "Hey, like you missed this one expense that that you probably already spent money on, right? You missed your home office expense that you're already spending money running anyway." They're not really. They're saving you money because of your lack of ability to to have great record keeping. That's what's going on. It's not tax planning, and that is valuable. That's mm-hmm. compliance, right? That's valuable, yep. but it's not tax planning. So don't walk away from the tax compliance process. Uh, you know, working with an accountant that might have just saved you ten grand, even though even though that's great. Don't walk away thinking that's tax planning. There's a like you just said. There's a whole. Other world to what real tax planning looks like, um, and and just getting way out in front
0: of next year's tax liability. All right, um, next one here, back to the business owners. So, and, and we kind of hit on this in in the, in the episode last week with you know these CPAs who just kind of fired back more generic answers. But um, I want to talk a little bit about what constitutes active versus passive participation and or, you know material participation in business, and then. And therefore, um, what's happening? So, I had a had a friend just yesterday send me an email. Um, he's got so he has a full time job, and he has, but he's also a serial entrepreneur. He has him and some partners have five five other companies that they own. Uh, mm-hmm. Two of those companies he has over five hundred hours in. The other three he he actively manages, sets the strategies, helps manage. He just might have. Um, he certainly has less than 500 hours. And so some of those, he might have up to a hundred or, you know, he might hit that hundred hour mark, but might not be the only one with a hundred. Um, but his CPA just automatically fired back saying, nope, none of those count as, as active income, um, without asking the question about how many hours he has and, and getting interested in that and just said, nope, those, those are all passive. So therefore he's missing out on, you know, rightfully being able to lower his taxable income right now at a point when, so he's going to pay more money in taxes when, he's at that you know that early inflection point in a business where cash flow matters so much and so from that same point to the point you know an investor has to be educated enough about taxes to be able to know when to push back and ask questions so it falls on the client to say wait, wait a minute i i need to ask more and just because my cpa said no doesn't mean the final answer is no it might just be they're saying no based on the information they have they know this guy has a full time job they just don't know that he's you know, actually working thirty five hundred dollars a year instead of two thousand or whatever that might be. Um, so, can you hit on just a little bit, help someone understand what what constitutes active versus passive income?
1: So, um, okay, so so let, let let's start at a high level because it actually sounds like your friend might be getting bad advice. Um,
0: I do think so. Yeah. Again, all CPAs are not created equal.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and and this is kind of what I was saying last episode, where Section 469 is complex. It's very nuanced. um, But at at a high level, we have two buckets of income. We have passive income and we have non-passive income. My non-passive income is any trade or business that I materially participate in. My passive income is all rental activities, unless I qualify as a real estate professional. and any trader business that I do not materially participate in, so uh, so all my real all my rental real estate, you know I'm investing on the side. If I'm not a real estate professional, and it creates losses, those losses are passive losses. They go into my passive bucket, and they get suspended if I don't have passive income because my. W two income. My business income is in a different bucket of income. It's in the non passive bucket of income. All right, yep. and and the reason that it's in the non passive bucket of income is because you know I, I'm I'm working two thousand hours a year at my W two job. That is material participation. Or I'm working two thousand hours at my business. That's material participation. Like I am materially participating in my CPA firm. So that goes into my non passive bucket. If I go buy a rental property tomorrow. Cost seg, bonus depreciate it, it creates big tax loss. I can't use that to offset my CPA from income because that rental goes into that passive bucket. Now, the problem arises when I start investing in different businesses, okay, much like your friend has. <clears throat> when I start investing in different businesses, there are different opportunities um, that, depending on my role, uh, I may or may not be materially participating in each one of those uh, additional businesses. Um, but In general, there are seven material particip not in general, there are seven material participation tests. You only have to meet one of them. Uh, It is looked at on an activity-by-activity basis, so business-by-business or rental property-by-rental property unless you make some sort of grouping election. Um, But I only have to meet one of those tests per activity. So if I invested in this separate business and I'm spending 500 hours a year helping operate that business, uh, then that time, that, that would be material participation, right? So that would be a non-passive activity. All right. And, yeah, and that non-passive activity would be grouped with my other non-passive income, right? My, yeah. my CPA firm income, my W-2. Now the question would be, what type of hours are we spending during those 500 hours, right? Because there is a differentiation between what is an investor hour, yep. where, uh, meaning what would any investor do Uh, versus what would an operator do? So we kind of have to differentiate between those two. So, you know, if your friend reached out to me, I'd be very interested to kind of look
0: at what type of time, what are we really doing in each one of these businesses? And and, and maybe I'll I'll spend some time, just because there are a couple of things I want to get to with you. I'll spend some time in a future episode or maybe with Tom, you know, in the next weeks going into into those those qualities of, of, of the hours. So
1: yeah. Yeah. So the quality of the hours matters. Uh, that's what we run into with real estate investors all the time. They'll say, I have 500 hours of listening to podcasts and going to conferences. But it's like, ah, that's not actually operating your rentals. Though, so that Search doesn't count. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Oh, I got right, realtor.com up for eight hours a day. That counts, right? No. Um, so it does, it does matter. But 500 hours uh, is pretty significant. And uh, if you're investing in various businesses and you're spending, you're, you're, you are spending 500 hours helping operate those businesses. Yeah, that's a material participation activity. Now, the other there are seven tests like I said. You only have to meet one. 500 hours is one test. But there are other tests. There's 100 hours and more than anyone else, which typically you're not going to see if you're an investor in a business. Like I might spend 100 hours, but the CEO is going to outwork me or the COO is going to outwork me. So, I'm not going to spend more time than they are. So that one's out. Um, and uh, and there's a few others. But the one that your friend should look into is test number four, significant participation activity. Uh, and I'm not going to go into it, but the point is, is that there are seven tests to analyze. And your friend might qualify the other businesses that don't hit that 500-hour rule. Your friend might actually qualify under the significant participation activity test, um, which you know would need a reading of uh, yep. based on his facts and circumstances. But um, yeah, typically with businesses like, if you're if you're like actively involved, uh, you might be able to qualify under that significant participation activity test and um, make those businesses non passive. But it could also be beneficial to leave the businesses as passive, because yeah. if I invest in like a hair salon and the profits coming back to me, like I'm not materially participating in this hair salon. I don't I don't help with operations. I'm not on the board. I'm not doing anything. I just put hundred k up. Uh, I get ten thousand dollars a year in in profit share. That's $10,000 of passive income. Now I can go and buy a rental property and I can create a tax loss from the rental property and I can use that passive loss from the rental property to offset the passive income from the hair salon. So it doesn't have to be like rental property to rental property, it's just passive business to passive business. Um, So you can kind of do a rich dad, poor dad on steroids type of situation where you have a bunch of these passive business investments that generate income and then use rental real estate to offset it. We actually do this a lot with our physicians. They'll buy into surgical centers yep. uh, that they are not they are not materially participating in. But those surgical centers spit off cash flow. So right. then we go build this rental portfolio and we don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional because it's all passive,
0: right? It's easy. Yeah. All right. All right. Very good. So next one here, um, just with the, the time we have left, let's get into audits. I want okay. to... I want to kind of demystify audits a little bit. So I've I've got, you know, friends and clients who have experienced audits and sometimes they're horror stories, sometimes they're not, but, but what do you experience with audits? What, how scared of an audit should a client be, especially as we do this tax planning, a lot of people and a lot of CPAs tell their clients to shy away from audits because of the, 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 what if factor of, you know, what if you get audited? Um, so we just would rather not take any risk, um, so can you can you go after that a little bit? Just talk about audits.
1: Sure. I think people have an unfounded fear of being audited, um, and and it's just like, I mean, I get it. Like, I, I receive mail for some of our clients uh, where we're the power of attorney on their accounts, and we're helping them through different things. And every time I get a letter from the IRS, my heart drops. Right. So even me as a professional, I see that IRS stamp in the mail, and I'm like, oh no, what did I do? So I understand, but. Um, if you are, if you are, if you are not taking overly aggressive tax positions, and overly aggressive means like I can't substantiate these tax positions, we we don't want to do that, right? We always want to be able to to substantiate what we're doing, either by citing the Internal Revenue Code or by citing
0: um, tax court cases that uh, that give us authority. Having some take type commission. of auditable file that yeah, someone comes in, yeah, right. happy to present this to you.
1: Exactly. And so, like, like, the tax planning process I mentioned, w- w- that first 30 days, our clients get a document that details all that, right? Yep. So, the idea is, if I can substantiate my positions, then I should not be scared of an audit as long as I'm doing the documentation that's required on an ongoing basis. Um, people that are scared of an audit, are they, they have this unfounded fear of the IRS coming in and just wiping them out and freezing their assets and taking them to jail. That's, that's not going to happen. Uh, but, the nasty audits are the ones where people take positions that they should not be taking, uh, like claiming real estate professional status when I work a full-time job. Um, and people do that all the time. Yep, they, they lose that audit, right? And they can't substantiate it. And uh, th- the audits are also pretty nasty when I'm not good at documenting things on an ongoing basis. So the the... What I will do instead is wait five years to be audited, and then I'll try to go dig up all those receipts. Those are nasty audits, not necessarily because you're taking a bad tax position, but because of how much time you're going to have to invest in getting the information the auditor wants to substantiate your tax position. So if you can substantiate your position with actual authority, and if you can stay on top of your documentation, audits are not, they should not be scary. Uh, and they will not take a significant lift for you to go through but the audits that I that we've assisted on we, we I wrote an I wrote, I wrote this like 30 page ebook on real estate professional status back in 2020 and ever since I've been we constantly it's, get calls to come help it's really people really good yeah yeah no it's it's a great it's a great ebook um, yeah. but we constantly as a result get people saying please help me with my real estate professional status audit almost every single one of them loses because they're, they're counting all this time that doesn't count, like research time and education time and travel time and investor, you know, due diligence time. So you got to understand the law uh, and you have to understand the fundamentals so that you don't accidentally take a position that you cannot substantiate. Those are the people that get crushed in an audit. But most of the folks that are doing it, um, you know, legally, ethically and have good documentation, the, the audits are not very... I mean, it's, it's a pain, don't get me wrong, Sure,
0: but it's relatively speaking smooth. What, what is the penalty that someone, when they, when they lose their real estate professional status audit, what are they, what are they normally looking at?
1: Yeah, so it depends. Um, so the IRS can assess some pretty gnarly penalties. They can go 20% and 40% depending on how big the tax clawback is. Okay. Um, so you can really be out a lot of money. It's not like, oh, well, I, I got this $40,000 tax savings. If I get audited, I'll just pay $40,000 back plus interest. It doesn't work like that. You're going to pay penalties on the amount of tax that you should have paid. You're going to pay interest on the amount of tax you should have paid. And you might have additional penalties, that 20% layer and the 40% layer, depending on how big of a misstatement this was on your tax return. So okay. it could get to be a pretty substantial tax bill. And it's, a, it's something that you're not counting on from a financial perspective, generally speaking. like It's not, right. it's not in my annual budget to go and back pay $65,000 on this $40,000 tax savings I got way back when. But you also have to imagine, too, like the reason that these bills get so large is because the penalties start from like April 15th. The interest starts from April 15th, the payment date of when these taxes were originally owed. But in reality, your audit isn't going to be wrapped up until four and a half, five years after that date, because the IRS has a three-year statute of limitations to start the audit. And then it typically takes 12 to 24 months to get through it. And all that time, your taxes, the back taxes that you owe are continuously accruing penalties and interest. So it can get pretty substantial uh, simply because it's just it just takes such a long
0: time to get through this process. So best piece of advice you have for someone who's going through it? an audit right now, or who, who's just getting, who's just receiving that letter for the first time saying you're about to be audited. Best advice you have for them.
1: Best advice I have is, uh, understand what specifically is being audited and why. So they will tell you specifically what forms or, or, uh, like real estate professional status. They'll tell you we're auditing that piece. Yep. So understand exactly what they're auditing. Uh, do some due diligence to try to figure out, did you accidentally take a position that you should not have taken? Um, and if that's not true, if you took a position that you can substantiate, then continue fighting the audit. If you took a position you should not have taken, that's probably when you want to loop in a tax attorney and try to figure out if you can quickly get test settlement, um, maybe even waive penalties. Uh, so you definitely want a tax attorney to help you at that point um, and, uh, and, and help you close that
0: audit out as, as quickly as possible. All right. So all attorneys are not the same. And there are, there are, you know, state attorney is not going to be the one to help you with a tax audit. Right. right. All CPAs are not the same. Um, can you get into, to kind of wrap this up here? We've got a number of real estate investors who listen to, uh, who listen to this. What is unique about Hall CPA? We, we talked a little bit about you, you handle these syndications and, and that side. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's phenomenal. I've got some, I've got some people I'm excited to introduce you to there. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, Going after the, the, the individuals here, what's unique sure. about Hall CPA?
1: So I think there are three things that are unique about our firm. The first is that we niche in real estate. Uh, if you're investing in real estate, you cannot at this point throw anything at us that we have not seen before. Uh, we also invest in real estate ourselves. Like I said, I have 25 units. One of my partners has 150 units. Most of our employees own rental real estate to some degree. Um, so you're talking investor to investor as well as investor to tax professional, which is kind of cool. The second thing that makes us unique is the process that we have developed uh, to help clients mitigate their tax positions. Uh, like I, we, we kind of touched on it, we always start with tax planning. There's, there is a 12-month process to it. The first 30 days are pretty intensive in terms of getting to know you and going through your situation and then delivering a tax plan to you. Um, and that process, like clients love that process. Uh, we have like a 9.9 net promoter score on average out of 10 over the past two years that we've been actually tracking it. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, and then the third thing that makes us unique, and this is what we were kind of talking about before we hit record, you know, I have built my firm to focus on the client experience. Uh, and you know, being the entrepreneur that I am, I make, decisions that sometimes lead to not not being good decisions <laughs> so there have been times in the past where we have made mistakes with clients and we have screwed up uh that we've screwed up the relationship and the, and the experience but every we, we always try to improve it uh, yeah. every single time we try to improve it and what i i've started coaching other cpa firms um as our firm has grown and we've gotten some notoriety for people reach out and they're like can you help me and the number one thing that I see is just there's no real process around making sure our clients are getting what they want and being proactively communicated with on an ongoing basis. Uh, something really simple is think about your, your accounting relationship that you have right now um, and uh, and how long does it take them to reply to an email? You might be thinking, oh, my accountant gets back to me within like five days. But some of you are probably going, yeah, my accountant takes two weeks to get back to me. So it's something as simple as like at our firm, we say 24-hour response time is perfect service. 48 hours is the expectation. If I hear of anybody going over 48 hours, it's like game over for them um, at my firm in terms of employment. So, and we have all sorts of software that tracks this stuff on an ongoing basis. So we are always focused on making sure that the client has a great experience working with our firm. um, And that has helped us Retain clients and grow quickly over the years that I've been running this business. And like I said, we screw up from time to time, and, and we always own those mistakes. I've I've made clients mad in the past. If you're an ex-client listening to this, I'm sorry. I'd love to. I'd love another chance. Um, but we always implement new systems, new technology, new people, new process in order to enhance that client experience. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have customers, you don't have anything. Yeah. All right.
0: Um, how does someone get a hold of you guys?
1: So, if you want to explore a client relationship, you can hit us up at www.therealestatecpa.com. And, uh, and you mentioned it a little bit ago, but if you are interested in checking out our Tax Smart Insiders, uh, whoop, what did I just say? Yeah. If you're interested in tech, checking out our Tax Smart Insiders community, uh, which is kind of the bridge between free content and premium service, uh, you can go to tax investors.com slash free dash trial so either one of those we'd love to have you
0: okay very good brandon I, I truly appreciate your time and the uh, the expertise that you've shared with us over the last couple of weeks here um, and, and just any listeners I I'm absolutely validating this um, that that tax smart insiders club that they have is is so helpful to me and and like I said I'm, I'm excited to to start sending some, some clients your way on, on the CPA side, because it's just, it, it's invalid. It's, it's, it's hard to calculate a value to having someone who really understands that because it it's, it's got an exponential return. It's not just what we see today, but it's where you're helping them grow to in the future. And it's not all about dollars and cents. It's also about life and everything else. And I think that you bring that perspective into it is, is incredibly unique. And, and I, I just applaud and appreciate that. And, and so again, thank you for your time today. And I would strongly encourage people to uh, to absolutely reach out to Whole CPA as well as uh, check out this TaxSmart Investors website. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, next week, we are going to get in with Brandon's partner. We are going to dig in. Um, we're going to dig into some of the, these things, some of the simpler things about uh, home office deductions and vehicle deductions. We're going to then get heavy into this whole thing called real estate professional status. And it's powerful. Uh, It's not meant for everyone, so we're going to dig into that. So thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, and together we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.